We are uh, studying this summer, we kind of have uh, just pushed the pause button, so to speak, on our study of Acts, and as a church, we are um, going to spend the summer months, we'll dive back into Acts in the fall, but this summer, we are going to be looking at a variety of parables that Jesus told. Um, if you are familiar with Jesus, his ministry, his life, he was a man who many wanted to be around. There was so much that Jesus did and said that just drew crowds to him, and one of the devices that he used on a regular basis to not just capture their attention, but also to communicate spiritual truths was he told stories. Our God, the God of the Bible, is a storytelling God, and Jesus's ministry epitomizes that. As we introduced this series last week, what we essentially said was uh, parables are short metaphorical stories that Jesus, is, Jesus used to teach us, to teach his followers, all listeners, about the kingdom of God. Generally speaking, he used parables to sort of teach two different things. Either A, he taught them about life within the kingdom, how the kingdom sort of operates, or B, he would teach them, tell parables to teach folks about how to get into the kingdom of God. So either how it operates once you're inside or how you enter into the kingdom. What we'll see in our parable this morning found in Luke 15, verses one to seven, the parable, some of you, hopefully many of you are familiar with this. We've already talked a little bit about it in service, the parable of the lost sheep. What we'll see as we look at these seven verses together is really this parable teaches us both how we operate within the kingdom and how one gets into the kingdom. This parable Jesus uses to sort of teach both things. So if, I have, um, if you have a copy of God's word, you will be greatly helped if you have it open to Luke 15, verses one to seven. And while you find yourself turning there, um, I'm gonna tell you a story. Is that okay? Okay, all right, tell you a quick story. So a number of years ago, uh, my wife and I, our family, we lived downtown Iowa City on North Johnson Street. At this time, we had just two boys, Tony and Zachary. I believe Zachary was about two years old at the time. I was, it was a Tuesday evening, and I was out at an elder meeting. The elder meeting went long, as sometimes they can occasionally do. And by the time I got home, it was probably about 10 o'clock at night, and uh, Natalie was sleeping, everybody in the house was dark, everybody was clearly asleep in the house, okay? So I walked up, I, as would be normal for me, up our stairs, and I went into the boys' room, and I just gave them a quick kiss and a squeeze goodnight as they were sleeping in the bed, at least that's what my intent was to do. I found Tony, I kissed him, squeezed him, goodnight, son. I went and found, well, I looked for Zach in his bed, and I discovered he was not in his bed that his bed was vacant, it was empty. And I was like, that's odd. Well, maybe not totally unusually odd. Oftentimes our kids will fall asleep as maybe if parents hear your kids fall asleep in your bed. And I thought, well, he's probably in there sleeping with his mom. So I went into our bedroom and, and found Natalie asleep in the bed. And I, I thought Zach would be close by. No, Zach. I thought that is really strange. So I went back to the room. Is he sleeping with Tony? No. Is he in his bed? No. Is he under the bed? No. Is he in the closet? No. Search the room thoroughly. No, Zach. 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night. Went back into our room. Is he in? We had a crib at that time in our bedroom. And is he in the crib? No, he's not in the crib. Looked all around. He was nowhere to be found upstairs. Guest bedroom? No, Zach. At this point, 
my heart rate begins to elevate. I begin to get a little worried. Parents, maybe you've been in similar situations before. I go downstairs, I search the couch. Did he fall asleep on the couch? No, is he in the kitchen? I'm checking the cupboards. Finally, I go upstairs and I wake up Natalie. Natalie, where is Zach? I can't find Zach. And she wakes up sort of in a daze and says, he's in his bed. He fell asleep, but we, you know, she tucked him in and then she went to bed and whatever. So I'm like, he's not in his bed. Oh, certainly he's in his bed. He's not in his bed. So she gets up in a panic. We search the entire house. I begin to walk outside, go up and down the streets yelling for Zach. Again, I said we live downtown. It would not be uncommon for us to have strangers on our doorstep late hours, live by fraternities. And oftentimes there'd be, you know, people wandering through our backyard that didn't belong there necessarily. So I thought maybe somebody came into our house. I'm up and down the street yelling, panic. We are just within about five minutes, terrified. Terrified. Finally, after about 10 minutes of looking, I call 911. I can't find my son. Can you help me find my son? My wife is, as you can imagine, tears running down her eyes, absolutely terrified, thinking of all the worst possible situations. Somebody just took our child. She sits down on her bed and she weeps. I'm calling, the nine, I'm calling 911. They ask me all the questions. You know, hang up, get off the phone. I walk upstairs and Upstairs, as she sat down on her bed and began to weep and pray, she began to hear a faint breathing noise. She, eyes opened. Where's the breath coming from? Where's the noise coming from? It's coming from the direction of the crib. So she goes, falls on her knees. Underneath the crib, there's a crib skirt that goes around the crib. Underneath the crib, there's a trundle where we keep all of the crib sheets and pillows and excess stuff for the crib. And there on top of the sheets... She finds one Zachary Q. Fern sleeping peacefully, totally unaware of the panic and the fear that his parents just experienced in the last 10 minutes. Picks him up, wraps him in her arms. Tears turn from tears of fear to tears of joy, just like that. He who has ears, let him hear. This parable that we're looking at this morning is a remarkable story here in Luke chapter 15. It is what many have said is one of the most remarkable chapters of the Bible. J.C. Ryle, the bishop, former bishop of the Anglican Church, said this about Luke 15. There is probably no chapter in the Bible that has done greater good to the souls of men. In Luke 15, we find three stories, and all of them share a common theme, the lost being found. And as we look at just the first parable, each of them shows sort of a different, shed a very different light and gives sort of a different window on what it means for the lost to be found. The first two stories, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin are oftentimes presented very together. And the parable of the lost son is the third story, parable of the prodigal son, um, shines sort of a different light on this, this reality that our God is a finding God. And what we'll see specifically in the first seven verses, this extraordinary truth comes leaping off the pages of our Bible and reminds us that God delights in saving the lost. It's the big idea of the story today. God delights. God, the eternal creator of the universe, finds great 
joy in finding you in me. God delights in finding the lost. I'm gonna read the story for us, then I'll pray and we will dive in, okay? Luke 15, one to seven. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning as it comes to us. We thank you for the fact that it is eternal, that it is true, that you have given it to us so that it can guide us in what it means to, to simply live in the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would take this word, that you would write it on our hearts, that you would use it this morning specifically to comfort us, your sheep, and also, Lord, would you use it this morning to challenge us, your sheep. Do that this morning. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. God delights in finding the lost. To see this truth in our Bibles this morning, I want you to consider with me three things. The first, Jesus' heart for the lost. The second, how Jesus goes about finding the lost. And the third, what happens Next. So first, what is Jesus's heart towards the lost? We'll see this in verses one and two. These stories were told, these three stories, the, the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. These three stories were told in response to an attack on Jesus by those who were, we would maybe describe as self-righteous. We, we talked a lot about Pharisees last week and sort of their attitude towards other people and, and how they viewed themselves. Their, their righteousness, these are men who saw their righteousness ultimately bound up in, in their good deeds and their ability to perform a particular way and their, their ability to follow rules properly. The accusation that they level against Jesus that causes him to, to tell these stories is that Jesus, it says right there, this man in verse two receives sinners. He has his arms open wide and welcomes those who oftentimes are not welcomed. And more than that, he sits around the same table with these type of people and he eats with them. Their accusation is that he's receiving sinners and eating with them. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus throughout the gospel, you will see that this is not the only time this accusation is made. Essentially, the problem that they have with Jesus, the picture that we get of Jesus as we read through the gospels is that Jesus is a friend to sinners. He's a friend 
He's friendly to people that the Pharisees don't think he should be friendly towards. And this is a regular accusation. They, they called him this friend of sinners, well, because it was true. It was true. He was a friend of sinners. He himself said he did not come for the spiritually healthy, but he came for the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, Jesus says, but sinners to repentance. And for Jesus, what did that look like? Well, it looked like Jesus enjoyed spending time with sinners. Imagine that. He, he enjoyed teaching them, dialoguing with them, answering their questions. He, he enjoyed going into their homes, breaking bread, eating meals with sinful people, gathering around their table. And we know from this accusation that those people, the, the sinners, the lost, they must have felt comfortable in his presence. They felt at ease. They felt a particular ability to simply be themselves. Now, I don't know about you, just recently I was sitting out on the patio with a neighbor and uh, I was I think a Saturday afternoon, I don't totally remember, but he knows my profession. Sometimes, you know, this is one of, you know, when you're a pastor, like, and people know you're a pastor, this is one of the, a common expression. We're just talking, telling stories, talking about the neighborhood, whatever, and after about three or four, you know, like, slips of the tongue, shall we say, <laughs> you know, he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, excuse my language, you know, and, and, and for me, my response is, no, no need to apologize, you know, it's just, just, it's just you and me. You can, you can, to me it was encouraging that this individual felt sort of okay just being himself. I mean, he wasn't saying anything horribly offensive. The words that he was using weren't totally vulgar or nasty. In fact, you know, I, I don't even know that I noticed a few of the words, but he said them and he just immediately felt like he had to apologize. And part of me thought, no, it's, it is you should feel okay just sort of being who you are in my presence, right? Jesus, the people who came to him felt like they could be around Jesus and just be who they were. There was something compelling about Jesus that drew them to him. They're tax collectors and sinners. They're, they're drawing near to Jesus. He's not forcing himself on them. They want to be where he's at. They're sensing from his words and, and from his reaction to them and their presence that they are welcomed and that they're valued when they're with him. There's something enticing about Jesus. When they're with him, it's as if there's a, a sense of intrigue or a fresh sense of hope that they feel around Jesus. And his response as they drew near, this is what's so remarkable. As they say, I want to be around you, Jesus, his response to them is not to sort of put up a barrier, right? Draw a boundary line around his life and say, well, as long as they don't get that close, rather, it's as if he's pulling them closer to himself. And while this the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes meant what they said as an accusation, really as an indictment 
on Jesus, this label, friend of sinner, is for us, you and me, sinners. Actually, a label of unspeakable joy and comfort that Jesus, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God looks at us in our sin and wants us to be with Him. Unspeakable joy. Jesus was a friend of sinners. It was not joy for the Pharisees. It was not for the religious. It was a threat. In their minds, this isn't how it is supposed to work. If you were to put yourself for a moment just in their shoes, this would have been wildly frustrating for them. Jesus had just gone to great lengths throughout, if you were beginning in the book of Luke, just read throughout his teachings. He would would have gone to great lengths to show that there is sort of a, a narrow group of people who are allowed entrance into the kingdom of God. That while it is inclusive in the sense that really all we need to qualify us for entrance is our sin and our ability to pull it together on ourselves, it's also exclusive. That not everybody gets in. Jesus has been teaching that the gate is narrow. Not everybody gets into the kingdom. This would have been a frustrating reality for the Pharisees. I don't know if you guys have ever been a part of an exclusive club before. When I was growing up, one of the, the exclusive clubs in our town was the country club. If uh, the country club always had the greatest fireworks in town, the country club had a phenomenal um, brunch on a Sunday morning, like the best in town. It had the greatest golf course. And if you wanted to benefit from all of the great benefits that the country club had to offer, it came with a price, right? You had to pay a membership and the price was high, too high for us. But if you had a friend who could pay the price, on occasion you could join said friend and and benefit from some of those things that the country club had to offer. It was an exclusive club that was really designed just for the wealthy. I mean, you had, to, you had to dress a particular way to go onto the facilities, right? They had a standard. They wanted people only with really this much money to be in there. Only a few could be in there. Jesus is redefining what this looks like for these people. He's redrawing the lines. And and as they begin to understand the Pharisees that not everyone gets in, their thought, their logic is that it should really only be the few that get in should be the best, the, the most religious, the ones who are playing by the rules, who know the game. The doors narrowed. Jesus had just said, you should strive to enter the door. And then the Pharisees, as they're hearing this, they're thinking to themselves, he's describing us. We're the ones who are striving to enter. How troubling this must have been for these individuals to see that it's the sinners. It's not the best among you. It's actually the worst among you who were friends with Jesus who are welcomed by Jesus. Imagine how they felt. Jesus is redrawing the lines and the Pharisees and the scribes find themselves for the first time 
on the outside looking in. This is troubling. This is really, really, really troubling. And to make matters worse, it's not just that the Pharisees hear that, okay, it's not for us. It's that they also see and hear, wait, I'm on the outside and she gets in? I'm on the outside and you're gonna let him in? Their whole world is getting flipped on their head and they don't like it. They don't like it. But for Jesus, he saw those people that he was sitting around a meal with, interacting with, where the Pharisees saw them as having no value. Jesus saw them as having great value. What a fantastic reminder for us this morning. Some of you are here today and you feel like you have made a total mess of your life. And you might even find yourself asking, why would Jesus want anything to do with me? Dealt with rejection, with pain that has come from oftentimes your own mistakes and sin. Why would Jesus want to associate with me? Well, this story is wonderful news that you, if you find yourself in that position, are still incredibly valuable to God. He is able to see what you were made to be. And he knows what he still can make of you. This story is a reminder of that news. It's also a demonstration, I think, and we'll see this as we get into the prodigal son later, of, of love even toward the Pharisees. He did not need to tell them this story, but instead Jesus holds up a mirror so he can teach them how the kingdom of God works. And it's a demonstration of love even to them. So that's Jesus' heart for the lost. Now, the second question is, how does Jesus go about finding the lost? We see it in verses four and five as Jesus responds to the accusation by telling them a story. As just like we said last week, parables are oftentimes familiar scenes with ordinary situations and relatable characters. And this parable is exactly like that. It is a pastoral story, a pastoral setting that everybody who's listening would easily be able to sort of track with and understand and relate to. A shepherd is tending his flock and, and he, he looks up and takes count as shepherds often would do and he notices that one is not there. One has been lost, it's gone astray, he can't find it. And each sheep for this shepherd is so critical, is so important. So what does he do? He takes the 99 that he has and he leaves them to graze in the open country. Likely somebody caretaking, some caretaker keeping an eye over these sheep. This would not be an uncommon thing. And he goes out in pursuit of the lost one. He goes looking. He goes on a search. Finally, he finds the one he's been looking for. And the shepherd, when he lays eyes on the sheep, he moves towards the sheep. He scoops down and picks up the sheep. He lays it on his shoulder. And the whole way back to the flock, he is singing songs of joy. 
that which he has been looking for, he found. Rejoicing, he makes his way back to the, to the flock. He puts the sheep with the fold. Then he calls up his friends, his neighbors, his family members. He says, come on over. We got a party to celebrate. We, we, we're gonna throw a massive party. You're invited. Because the lost has now been found. Jesus, in response to the fact that he's a friend of sinners, tells this story. What a story. What a story. Remember the Pharisees and their mind realizing in chapter 1433 that, that it's, it's hard to get into the kingdom of God. If anybody knows that, it is these Pharisees. Not everyone, remember it's an exclusive group, not everyone gets in. They see Jesus welcoming sinners. How did they get in? How, how did he get in? How did she get in? Well, the story says very simply, Jesus says, let me tell you how they got in. God looked for them, God found them, and God brought them back. How, how did the lost come back into the fold? God looked, God found, and God brought them home. They got in not because, this is what I think is so striking about this parable. They got in not because the sheep went looking. We don't have any inclination that the sheep itself even knows it's lost. But the shepherd is the one who went looking. This is what Jesus does. He seeks after sinners. We see it in Zacchaeus 19.10 when he sees Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Jesus walks by and he immediately sees Zacchaeus. It's as if from the moment he told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that he has his heart bent on finding Zacchaeus. And where does he find him? Hiding in a sycamore tree, probably full of shame. And what's his response? The son of man has come to seek and to save the lost this is what he's doing. He's in pursuit, hot pursuit of sinners, looking, seeking, looking and seeking for those who have gone astray. And what does he do? He finds them. This is what's so awesome about the fact that it's Jesus who's doing the looking. As he tells us over and over again in his gospel, I think of John 17, I think of John 6 and John 10, the, para, or the, the great I am, I'm the good shepherd. When Jesus compares himself to the good shepherd, those who have been entrusted into Jesus' care, he will find. He will find. He will find you. Those who belong to the Father, Jesus will find. He will save. And then it gets even better. And once he finds you, nobody, he says, can snatch you out of his hand. Once he's brought you into the fold of God, you are his, and nobody can come and snatch you away. He seeks you, he finds the lost, and Jesus brings them back to God. Ultimately, he brings them back to where they belong, where they were designed to be, to the very place that they can call home, where they can feel safe, protected. Jesus' point is obvious. Remember in John 10, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Aidan referred to that earlier. And this is what good shepherding looks like. 
This is what a good shepherd does. When one of their sheep is lost, he goes, hunts them down, and brings them back. It's really, as you read the parable, it's really quite striking. This is one of the things that jumped out at me this week, is how little responsibility the sheep has here. Do you know what the sheep does in the story? Gets lost, period. That's what he brings to the table. <laughs> he's gone astray, he's drifted off, he's been mowing down grass or whatever sheep does and looks up and is like, whoa, boy, I've messed up. <laughs> I should have been paying attention. The sheep, the only thing he does or she is get lost. Everything else is the responsibility and the work of the shepherd. The shepherd goes looking. The shepherd does the finding. The shepherd puts him on his shoulder. And now, just, I don't know if you, I've never done this, I don't think. Have you ever picked up a sheep before? Okay, I just, my, my mind began to imagine me picking up, maybe some of you have. That's okay, you don't have to be ashamed. It's, it's an okay activity to be a part of. I don't know, no shame, I just never have done it. But I'm assuming, I mean, I picked up my dog before and here's this domesticated animal who likes to, you know, try to lay on my lap anytime she can. And even when I pick her up, I can tell she don't like that. <laughs> she ain't going. She doesn't want to be picked up. And I've never tried to put her on my shoulder, but I can imagine how bad it would go for me if I tried to do that, you know? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm assuming that it's not the easiest thing. The picture I normally get is of the this, this sheep just like, oh, thank you so much. You found me just resting in the arms of the shepherd. I mean, maybe that's what's happening. I, I'm, I'm likely surprised the sheep has no idea it's lost, has zero clue of how much at risk, how vulnerable it is. And then when the shepherd tries to bend down and pick it up, I'm imagining it's trying to run away. And then putting it on his shoulder, maybe, maybe getting him a little bit in the neck, maybe kicking him a little bit in the back, I don't know. But all of the work of bringing this lost sheep back to the fold is the work of the shepherd. The sheep brings zero to the table other than just messing things up. Now, it's interesting because this would be a stark contrast from Israel's experience with shepherds. Um, in Ezekiel 34, there is a specific word where God prophesies and really condemns the shepherds of Israel. And if you just have your Bibles, you can flip there real quick. Ezekiel 34. Um, it begins by him prophesying against the shepherds of Israel. And if you were to read really verses one through 10, it, it's a word against those shepherds. The individuals who were supposed to be tending the flock, caring for the flock, protecting the people of God. Instead, if you just, you can, you can sort of read through one to 10 on your own, and what you'll see is that there is just word after word after word of judgment towards these shepherds because they were not being good shepherds. They were feeding themselves when they're supposed to be feeding the flock, they were clothing themselves. They were slaughtering the fat ones. Their eyes were looking for just the fat sheep, slaughtering just the fat ones. But don't feed the flock. The weak, they didn't strengthen. The sick, they did not heal. The lost, specifically it says in Ezekiel 34, you have not sought. 
And it says, because they've been bad shepherds, they will become prey. The sheep will become prey. They'll be vulnerable. They'll be food for others. This is a word against the bad shepherds of Israel. And then in verses 11 to 16, God makes this phenomenal promise. He begins to describe what, in contrast to the bad shepherds, what a good shepherd is like. And listen to the words, the phrases that describe the activity of a good shepherd. He says, I will seek them out. I will rescue them. I will bring them back. I will make them lie down. I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them. This is the description of what a good shepherd does. And it's a promise that ultimately the shepherd that the people of Israel need is none other than God himself. That was promised some several hundred years before Jesus arrived on the scene. And when Jesus comes, what he is ultimately saying with when he, when he declares that I am the good shepherd, when he tells stories like this of what a good shepherd looks like, he says, this is me. The time you have been waiting for is here. I am the shepherd that you have been waiting for. I'm the one who lays down in the pasture and, and puts the sheep on their shoulder. In the parable, the shepherd goes out and pursues the lamb, puts it on his shoulder, and brings him home. In reality, Jesus bears the weight of your sin and my sin on his shoulders when he dies on the cross. And why does he do that? He does that so he can bring you and me lost, astray, kicking, rejecting him along the way back into the arms of God where God has called us to be. It's really a remarkable, remarkable story. And he's giving us a glimpse of what the good shepherd would do in pursuit of you and me. Finally, in verses six and seven, we see what happens next. Look at verses six and seven. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What happens after Jesus brings you and me, brings the lost sheep back into his fold? Simple word, joy. He is filled with joy. You know, it's interesting. This is, this is a hard picture for me to image. Jesus rejoicing over my saved soul. Maybe it's a hard one for you too. I mean, nobody knows your sin quite like you and God. He knows, and he knows alone, exactly how far you've drifted. And the thought that he hunts you down, brings you back all on his doing, and then rejoices over your saved soul. Doesn't just rejoice, invites others to celebrate with him. This is really a staggering picture. It's, it's really remarkable. Now, going back to the story I told at the beginning when we lost Zach. 
when Natalie pulled out the trundle, saw him sleeping there. Now remember, we were filled with fear and panic, thinking of all the worst possible situations. Do you know what she did not do? She did not bend down, pick that sleeping, delicate little baby up, toddler, I guess, bend him over her knee and just start. (laughs) She didn't do that. That would have been ridiculous. Instead, she wrapped him in her arms, called me, told me, come upstairs, I found him. And we rejoiced together. That's the image that God leaves us with in this story. That's what God does for you and me. It's important for us to recognize that the shepherd does not rejoice privately. His friends, his neighbors, they all come. They all share in his joy. And this should be the Pharisees' response to what Jesus is doing. They should be the ones celebrating with him. They they ought to be sharing in the great celebration of the lost being found. But instead, the Pharisees are grumbling when they ought to be rejoicing. Folks, this is a community effort. If this is God's heart towards the lost, this should be our heart towards the lost. We have benefited because he has sought us out, he has found us, and he's brought us back. And if this is how God views those who've gone astray as the church of Jesus Christ, this should character, should describe our heart for the lost, for those who are far off. Seeking the lost should be, as it is for Christ, at the heart of our mission. God has placed us in a world where there are lost all around us. And the last thing he expects us to do is to huddle up together, just be around people who are found, and give zero care or attention to those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He wants us to, like him in this picture, have meals with those who are lost to tell stories with those who are lost, to share burdens, to pray for, to rub elbows, to work with, to get to know those who are lost. If this is critical and central to Jesus's mission, it should be to ours as well. And so you need to think, I need to think regularly, often, about the people in our lives who don't know Jesus and how much time we spend with them? Do we see people who reject Jesus as an enemy or as a threat? Or do we see them as people to be loved and to be found? And if it's the latter and not the former, are we pursuing them like Jesus is? We should be. The second thing to notice is just the the cause for celebration. I said earlier that really the only thing that the sheep does is get lost. Well, as Jesus unpacks it in verses six and seven, he says specifically that there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner who repents, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So being found does look like repenting and turning from our sin, right? Being self-aware enough to realize that we need a savior, and that Jesus is pursuing us. 
Those who recognize where they stand before God and respond accordingly are the cause for great joy in heaven. Last week, we saw that God honors humility, that only God can justify the ungodly. This week's story is a reminder that he does that through repentance. Repentance is a necessary activity in the heart of the sheep. Finally, I wanna close with just a quick couple applications. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, this story should be an everlasting reminder that you matter to God, that you matter to God. No matter how far you've drifted, no matter how far you've gone, you matter to God so much that he would send the pure spotless lamb, the son of God to die for you so you can come back. It should be a constant reminder that we matter to God. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this story should remind you what great lengths God would go to demonstrate his love for you. And all he asks is that you would turn from your sin, that you would trust in him, and like that lamb, mount up on his shoulders and let you carry him back to the flock. That's all he asks. He's done the work. Turn from your sins, trust in him, and walk with him. And he will be the shepherd that your soul longs for. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word and just for this reminder. Lord, we thank you for just your demonstration of love to us, that you are a God who looks for us, finds us, and who brings us back. Lord, I pray that that truth would never go stale in our hearts, that it would always be fresh in our lips, and Lord, that we would live lives that demonstrate your grace and your mercy um, so that others like Jesus may want to spend time with us, that we would be the type of people that sinners, that like tax collectors are drawn to, and that we would love them in word and deed, just like you have done for us. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.